Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon. As always, here with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, I feel like I haven't talked to you in ages. What's been going on? I feel like we've been talking about video editing all week <laughs> as we're doing voiceover work and, and splicing videos, but maybe. But, you know, it's not like real conversation. I, I feel like I've been shut out of your life for the last two weeks, and uh, I'm dying to know what's going on. I, I think it's been a week or two uh, with the podcast, so I agree with you. Yeah. I, didn't, I have Absolutely. missed you. But I'm just oh. sitting here in D.C. freezing my you-know-what off. <laughs> So and you're not speak, missing much. That, well, speaking of freezing, uh, today's guest, uh, who is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, Dr. Josephine Wolf. She is Associate Professor of Cybersecurity Policy at the Tufts University, at Tufts University, the Fletcher School. She's also author of the book, You'll See This Message When It Is Too Late, The Legal and Economic Aftermath of Cybersecurity Breaches uh, from MIT Press in 2018. So welcome. Must read. Must read. Welcome, Josephine. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, and I bet it's colder up there than it is in DC. It is pretty cold in, here right now. We've been we've been in the teens and twenties for the better part of a week and a half or so, and I think next week same thing. I don't. I don't want to make this a competition. Ten degrees off of that, <laughs> but we're like in the seven, eight, <laughs> nine degree realm right now. <laughs> yeah, I just replaced yeah. a car battery today, um, so it's cold. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Okay, Rachel, back to you. My woes are of not, not of consequence. Absolutely. So I've been, I mean, where to start, right, first of all. But one of the things I was, I was kind of, you know, of your many writings, Josephine, and I, I love your writing, and it's just so fascinating to read, um, you know, but on the vein of like cyber insurance, and it sounds like you also have a, a book coming out soon on cyber insurance, which we absolutely want to talk about. Um, but you were talking uh, about cyber insurance and defining cyber war, and, and you're, People are kind of getting into these really crazy gray areas, and I, I would love for you to kind of expand on kind of what you're seeing out there. Yeah, it's a really interesting, um, I think, an exciting area. You know, it's hard to get people sometimes really jazzed about insurance, but I've spent a couple of years looking at it now. I have this book coming out later this year with MIT called Cyber Insurance Policy, and the thing that I think has been really interesting to track in just really the past two years or so is that you've seen this really big shift in that market where there's this been been this huge spike in ransomware claims because right. there's been right. this huge spike in ransomware. And so all of a sudden, the insurers are sort of trying to rethink their risk models, trying to rethink how yeah. they've been selling these policies. And one of the things that we've seen happen as a result of that are some pretty high-profile denials of claims. And in particular, the ones yeah. around defining cyber war that you mentioned are mostly around the NotPetya attacks from 2017. Yeah. And this question of, can insurers invoke these war exclusions? To say, well, not Petra. Which they do on normal insurance, right? I yes, mean, exactly. Take cyber out of it. I mean, that's right. an easy, hey, a bomb hit your house from Russia. Sorry, doesn't cover count. <laughs> Absolutely, right? right? This is this is standard language right. that goes back. You know, when I start looking at some of the legal disputes, and I do a little bit of history in the book, this goes back to like Pearl Harbor. There are life insurance wow. disputes 
where people who die in Pearl Harbor, their family members try to claim life insurance. And the insurers say, no, this was an act of war. And, and the families and their lawyers say, no, 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 Pearl Harbor was, you know, the day before the United States of America <laughs> declared war. That wasn't war. And so it's, it's a, you're right. It's been in these policies wow. for a long time. Um, and it, it's been sort of disputed in the past, not just around Pearl Harbor. It's been disputed around terrorist attacks and sort of whether those count yeah. as acts of war. And that patch is interesting. Um, it is, we were pretty confident, the act of a nation state, right? It, it is attributed to yes. the Russian government. It is part of I think of we're highly ongoing, confident on that one. We're highly confident. <laughs> and um, and, well, and we're, we're, we're about to see the next iteration here. It's January 21st on uh, 2022, but... Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Right. So this this has implications, you know, not just for this incident, but for many more incidents, we think, potentially. Um, and, and because of that, you have sort of what the insurers, I think, see as this opportunity to say, OK, this is really clearly a nation state attack. And it's not just a kind of one off nation state attack. It's part of this ongoing conflict between yes. Russia and Ukraine. So there's, I think, a stronger case to be made than for many other cyber attacks that this is part of something that looks a little bit like war, right. something that's at least sometimes called war in right. the context of the conflict between those two countries. And, and so you see, you know, a couple of them, not just one insurer, not just one insured, getting into these legal disputes. Um, and there's a big, right. big case pending around Merck, the pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm. There's another one around Mondelez, the multinational food yep. company. And, and the fights are really over, well, is not Petya a warlike or hostile action, right? Does it fall under that category for insurance purposes? I um, mean, the latest ruling, which actually just came out last month in the Merck case, the judge basically says no, right? He says, look, you know, if you wanted it, if you wanted this exclusion to apply to cyber attacks, you should have changed the language. But it's totally reasonable for Merck to think that would involve the use of armed yeah. forces. Um, and right. so there's this really interesting fight playing out, which is wow. partly about not Petya, but much more than that, about sort of right. what are we going to do about the next wave of nation state attacks and who's going to have to pay for them. Yeah, so one of the things I have a question about as you bring that up that comes to my mind is, is, is really around attribution. Right. How do you determine that it was a nation state, you know, not even getting into which nation state, but a nation state versus a, a, a criminal group like our evil? Theoretically, they're gone. I don't buy that, Rachel. But, you know, operating out of a nation or on behalf of a nation state, do they even get into that level or really doesn't matter? It's it's any excuse they can get to cut their risk. So I think that is important here, because when you look at the definitions in the actual insurance policies, the idea that there's a government behind a sort of an act of war is really important to that definition. Right. Um, I think the reason you see these disputes crop up specifically around NotPetya is because there's not a lot of dispute around the attribution there, right? You get this coordinated right. multi-country attribution effort. Right in which the United yeah. States, the UK, Canada, Australia, right, a whole bunch of governments put out statements that are like, yes. we're quite confident this was Russia. Yes. And so I think in this particular case, you haven't seen many of the insureds trying to make the argument like, oh, this wasn't a nation state, because right. this particular incident is not a great one for doing that. And that's also, right. I think, why the insurers are sort of trying to test the water on this one, because they think they have the strongest possible case on that attribution issue. Wow. It's, yeah, because I think people were kind of getting into a place of cyber insurance. Oh, my cyber insurance will just cover it. So 
I'm, you know, I'm good. You know, I'm not going to worry so much. And, and I, I think you had written in one of your other articles too, about kind of, you know, um, where, where does the onus of responsibility fall in these kind of things? I mean, like targeted organizations, you know, what is their responsibility and, you know, kind of, I guess, you know, organizations at large, like how, how do you prevent it? I mean, it's going to happen. So like, who's got the stick then <laughs> to, to fix it, you know, because jailing them is, you know, there's what, 200 cyber criminals in jail, maybe worldwide. And I think you said in the first half of 21, $590 million have been earned by cyber criminals. I mean, something's got to change, but where? So rates are going up. Um, we're definitely seeing that. Um, it's not, it's not totally clear kind of mm-hmm. the ways in which the growth of the insurance industry in this sector has actually changed the question of who's responsible for what. And I'll say, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a question that interests me a lot. The, the first book I wrote is really about that is really about sort of who do we hold responsible for cyber attacks and failing to defend against them? And how yeah. do you kind of spread out that responsibility to all the different stakeholders who are involved in this ecosystem? Um, And that was actually kind of what got me started thinking about insurance, because one of the things a lot of the people I spoke to for that book said was like, well, this is all going to end up being about sort of who gets insurance and what the insurers require from their policyholders. And I think one of the things that I come away from looking at this insurance industry feeling pretty strongly is that the insurers have not been able to deliver on the promise of sort of, we're going to collect a lot of data and we're going to figure out what everybody needs to do to sort of have strong security. And then we're going to be able to help them reduce their risk. Um, And and so one of the reasons I I wrote a book about this industry is I think that sort of trying to come to grips with that failed promise of what cyber insurance was going to bring to to cybersecurity is really important for thinking about where we go from here. So Eric, you had a question. Yes, I did. So the the question was really around... What I'm not observing in the industry is that behaviors are changing as a result of any kind of insurance increases or anything like that. I mean, I just, I don't know that that is driving behaviors at this point. I do think people are much more aware. I think boards are involved in asking questions, but I don't hear a lot. You don't read a lot. You don't talk to a lot of of people at the C-level where cyber insurance is driving behavior, which you would right. think it would, right? Rates would either go yeah. way up or you'd have areas of risk because you they reduced coverage. To me, those are the two levers that an insurance company has. And we just keep seeing, we just keep seeing more and more ransomware hitting and, and impact to businesses. I think in your 2018 yeah. book, Josephine, and there's a long question, but in your 2018 book, you, you, you list out a series of escalating incidents. But we're not, I don't see behaviors changing. Am I crazy? No, I think, I think that's exactly right. And I think sort of a lot of what, what brought me to cyber insurance as a topic was this idea of like, oh, this is how we change behavior, right? We get all the insurers writing these policies that require companies to do the things that are most effective. And the insurers are the ones who are going to be able to put together that data and figure out what those safeguards and controls are because they have all these claims. Um, and I think you're exactly right. And I think there are a couple explanations for what's what's gone wrong in that. Um, the first one and okay. the biggest one is that I think sort of the process for buying cyber insurance is much lighter weight 
than certainly than I anticipated when I went into this, right? So I I would have thought, you know, you're selling cyber insurance to a company, you're going to do a pretty intensive audit of what their security posture is, what safeguards they do and don't have in place. And I think that sort of for a variety of reasons, both because insurers often don't have the technical expertise in-house, or they're just trying to grow this market so quickly, they don't have the time and the resources to do that. There's there's really not that process. What there is, is there's usually a questionnaire. So you get sort of, you know, let's say 10 to 20, maybe more like 40 now questions that say things like, do you have an incident response plan? And is there a person, you know, who is responsible for security? And do you have fire? Rachel's doing it. Right. And so and and you 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 know, it's it's kind of questions where like, of course you can answer yes to all of them and they're designed so you can answer yes to them and they can sell you insurance. But answering yes to the question, do you have a firewall? Do you have an authentication policy? You know, have you implemented multi-factor authentication doesn't actually stop colonial pipeline, right? Doesn't actually sort of get at the really in-depth kind of, of security analysis you would want. Um, and so I think there's been a real kind of failure there to, to yeah. try and change behavior in a meaningful way. Um, and I, I think there's, you know, some recognition of that now in the insurance industry that mm-hmm. those vetting processes are not really working in the way right. that we thought they were or we hoped they were at least. But mm-hmm. there's also just a lot of uncertainty about sort of where right. you go from here and how you make that better. I'm thinking about the last time I did life insurance. I mean, they drew blood. I, I probably filled out 10 pages of family and medical history. Yeah. You know, when, when you when you look at, I mean, think about any insurance. I mean, even my homeowner's insurance, I, I, I periodically get this update talking about the condition of the roof and the materials of the house and everything. It, it, it seems like it's so much more stringent. Yeah. They're definitely much better risk models in place for all of those things and sort of much more established insurance industry uh, sort of verticals to to look at all of those issues. And I think, you know, part of this may be an issue of this is new and this is going to take time for the insurers to get a hold of. Um, I think there are there are some reasons to think that there are more fundamental challenges here than just that, though. And that it's not just sort of because partly I say that because I would say as the industry has matured, even over the past few years, we haven't seen it necessarily moving in the right direction. We haven't seen it kind of getting closer. Okay, we're improving our risk models. We're, you know, making the progress you would hope to see to to feel like we're on a positive trajectory. Um, And and some of that just may be the nature of the threat landscape and sort of the boom in ransomware and kind of the things that the insurers were not anticipating but I, I do think that you're you're right to say this feels different from other types of insurance. This feels like there's less right. of a handle on it and there's less kind of expertise and certainty. Yeah, I'm, you reminded me of a conversation I had back, boy, it had to be 2012 maybe with my CEO at the time on, on you know, how do you get promoted in cybersecurity? You buy the latest hot project product and then you implement it. And nobody in the industry is focusing on outcomes. You know, and the, the, the industry isn't consolidating as a result. And yes, protection is getting better over time, but but the adversaries are moving faster and, right. and we're falling further behind. And we see that, Absolutely. I think, in the results. Yeah, yeah, I think that's totally fair. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting to me about insurance is, is policy, which is kind of the realm that right. I study most closely. 
the, the public policy space for a long time has had many people in it who are sort of saying, you know, we can't move fast enough to make the cybersecurity yes. regulations, right? Like government's slow mm-hmm. and unwieldy. We really need the private yes. sector. And so cyber insurance has kind of been held up as like, this is the private sector mm-hmm. solution that's going to be able to move quickly and change right. rules every year when policies are updated. And, and I would say again, you know, so far, and I, I try to be optimistic about this, but so far we haven't really seen that kind of making good in the way we might have hoped a few years ago. Yeah, yeah we still, we do have things like the NIST frameworks. And there are things where we, we have some level of standardization where they yeah. could form a basis for common questions, right? A, mm-hmm. a common level. I mean, we're almost seeing it, and Josephine, I don't know if you know about the uh, CMMC uh, work the government has been doing, which everybody has been arguing about, but there are different levels. And, 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 you know, it's while it's being contested, you know, a level one is very different than a level three. Right. And, and there's certain things you need to do. You would think that they would have standards where it's more than just, do you have firewalls? Yeah, Yeah, I would say the NIST framework is actually a great example of something that the insurers have not been able to correlate with improved outcomes in their claims data, right? That, you know, they they aren't able to say, oh, if you implement the NIST framework, then we see you will suffer fewer incidents or you will have smaller losses when you do. Or at least parts of it. Right. That's that's not a conclusion that sort of any of the underwriting teams I've talked to have ever been able to sort of come out confidently. Now, maybe that's because the NIST framework isn't working. Maybe that's because sort of the way it's being implemented is variable. Maybe that's because the claims data is not rich enough to sort of understand how well it's being implemented in different instances. I'll say, you know, another thing that comes up in this, and now now we're maybe too into the weeds, but that's often where I end up, is the insurers often don't have a lot of information about these incidents right. they're covering. Right. The, there are lawyers who are brought in to sort of oversee the incident response. And they often say, well, you know, the final report is covered by attorney client privilege. We can't share it with the insurer. <laughs> um, and so the insurers themselves are often very frustrated and feel like, you know, wow. I have no insight into what went wrong here. I can't build a better underwriting model. I, I thought it might be that or the lack of 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 uh, expertise in the industry. Right, the lack of understanding right. of cybersecurity in the industry, the yeah. insurance industry itself, Absolutely. that might hold them back. But it's it still doesn't answer for me why the claim, why, why the premiums aren't so aren't super high. Then premiums are skyrocketing like, in the past year. If that's any comfort. <laughs> um, well, so maybe that will drive. I mean, I I've found in business that that cost will drive money, will drive behavior. So maybe maybe we will see in the next couple of years a major major difference. I think that's possible. I I, I mean, I think that to sort of see that difference, we would still need a better handle on what it is exactly we think organizations should be doing around threats like Mm -hmm. ransomware. And that's where I think the the insurer's claims data would be most helpful is in saying, well, you know, if you have this kind of backup configuration or if you have these types of multi-factor authentication controls, right, then we we can really see that there's actually a much quicker recovery time or it's much easier to, to get things back up and running. Um, and, and so, of course, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful that will happen. I don't think that it has yet. I, I, I don't hear sort of from the insurers themselves yeah. that they feel they can confidently make those assessments at this point. So I believe, and like I said, I'm not an expert on cyber insurance but or insurance in general, but I believe cyber insurance will be one of the major movers if not the major mover that helps address the challenges in this industry. 
you know, consolidation, better protection of personal data. You know, you talk about it in your in your first book, you know, the, the motives for the attacks, financial right. gain, yes. espionage, public humiliation of their yes. victims, yes. which we saw with Sony and, and, and many others. I think insurance will help us in those areas, but you've got to understand the adversary and you've got to understand what you're protecting against. Right. And I don't think most companies do a good job today. I really hope you're right. Um, it's, it's why I started this project on insurance, because I thought this is a, a really important thing that I, I think and I hope is going to move this this industry in a serious way. I think I go back and forth between feeling like it needs some more time. It's getting there. You know, they're hiring more people with expertise. They're learning from from their past mistakes and feeling like are are the carriers all just going to stop selling this tomorrow? Because it, right. I mean, I think the last year and a half of ransomware claims has just been brutal. And yeah. and you've, yeah. you know, yeah. seen the insurers, some insurers, you've seen some reinsurers really sort of step back and reevaluate is this something that I want to to sort of be a primary on? Is this something right. that I think I can kind of carry in terms of the amount of risk involved? Well, if you just look at simple things like car theft, car insurance premiums are much higher in areas with higher car theft. That's yes. an easy equation for an insurance company. I, right. I would think they would extrapolate the same type of logic to cyber insurance, right? If I have softer targets... Rachel, we've talked to a lot of people, mm -hmm. state and local governments, city governments that are getting right. hammered with ransomware, soft targets. Hey, right. you know what? If you're not doing your job, is we're going to raise the rates. Yep. Or if they're more attractive targets, maybe critical infrastructure companies or companies that have, right. have a lot of intellectual property to lose or something like that, you would think the rates would be a lot higher. So, so there is some of that for sure. Um, yeah. There's there's the challenge of figuring out who the soft targets are, which I think the insurers yeah. are still wrestling with. Um, certainly yeah. everybody's rates are going up and they'll all tell you that. I think one of the things that some of the companies that purchase this insurance find frustrating is this feeling that sort of everybody's rates are going up regardless of what right. you have or haven't done around cybersecurity. So for instance, you mentioned the NIST framework. There's an interesting congressional hearing about cyber insurance several years ago in which they bring in some people who purchase for insurance for their companies. And people testify, you know, I spent all this time and money implementing the NIST framework. And then when my insurance got renewed, the premium doubled anyway, and nobody cared. Wow. Right. And so yeah. I think I right. think that there's a frustration on the, the policyholder side sure. of, well, you know, if I'm really good about security, that doesn't seem to get me anything in terms of a lower premium. So why would I'm I sure. spend the time and money on that? Well, it's it's like medical insurance or life insurance. You know, somebody who is grossly overweight with pre-existing conditions, heavy smoker, drug user, alcoholic, whatever, having the same exact rates as somebody who's running marathons or in perfect right. health. I don't know. You, know you, you would think that the insurance company for medical insurance or life insurance, right. they, they do have different premiums. They understand that. Right. I don't think they get that yet for businesses. Like they don't understand how to measure, how, how to appropriately charge organizations, both on the risk side, but also on people mm -hmm. who are doing the right things. Right. You would expect that to be, you know, off maybe is the best way to put it on both sides. I don't know. Am I crazy, Rachel? Well, it but I think from what from what Dr. Josephine Wolf was saying, uh, it, it sounds like there's um, if, if if it's a forty 
question, you know, questionnaire, right? I mean, right. how can they do the digging to validate? It doesn't sound like they well, have Well, if everybody's that answering yes, and, and one yeah. person's doing, one organization's doing their utmost and one's doing nothing, but they all answer yes, how they should you, be treated, they're treated alike, I bet. Well, how do you discern the difference? I mean, that's, that's the you thing, don't. right? I mean, it's, it's not like. You know, I, I can get a blood test and you can learn a lot about me, but there's no blood test for. But if there's no blood you know, test, there's security. no difference between two individuals from that from that measurement angle. Yeah, I think right? you've seen sort of a lot of partnerships. You've seen a lot of insurers trying to work with security firms um, to say, okay, you, you were going to have you go in and do the assessment of all of our potential policyholders and run the scans and and that sort of thing. So you've seen some movement there. I'll say again, that very rarely affects the premiums, though. That's sort of, yeah. uh, you know, we have these partners, they'll, they'll do some risk assessments, but the premiums are almost entirely tied to how big is your company? How, how much revenue right. do you have? Um, and so the policyholders themselves can see this is not really about my security posture or my vulnerabilities. Right. This is mostly about sort of how large a company am I and how much damage is the insurer therefore imagining I will be subject to. So there's really no incentive then to be better from an insurance perspective. There hasn't been. Um, I'm, I'm hoping, yeah, I'm today. always optimistic that will change. Yeah, I that think would be the good. insurers are always trying to get there and, and always struggling a little bit to figure out how. Interesting, seems, okay. Well, if, yeah, because you assume, right? I mean, basically, if, if, if you haven't been breached yet, you know, it, you will, or it's just a matter of time. It's a laying in wait. Cyber insurance sounds like a really risky <laughs> kind of business to be in. Because you, but nine times out of ten, you're going to have to pay out on something unless you can find this definition of war or these other, other kind of you know loopholes or not loopholes, however you want to look at them. I mean, it's it's really fascinating, uh, and and there's no clear path, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a really risky business. I think I think you need to have a certain kind of confidence in in your own risk models that's probably not deserved right. uh, to to be selling this. I would say two things that that are important to kind of keep in mind from the perspective of the insurers. One is this is still a sort of relatively small insurance market compared to like the really big ones, auto insurance, property right. and casualty insurance. But it's one of the only sectors of insurance that's growing really fast. So the insurers are under a certain amount of pressure to kind of expand this part of their right. portfolio and make sure they're not losing out to all of their competitors on who's going to win the cyber insurance customers. And the other thing I'd say, which is I just think really important to keep in mind, is that up until 2019 or so, it was a very profitable form of insurance compared to others, yes. right? That sort of yeah. you paid out less of your premium intake uh, percentage wise than you did for auto insurance, than you did for sort of these other uh, areas of insurance that had much better risk models. And because there right. were much better risk models, they were kind of, it was easier for all the different insurers to compete with each other on price. Mm -hmm. And so cyber insurance didn't feel really risky until right. 2020, right? And, and right. then all okay, of a so sudden 2020 it kind of happens. went off the rails. Yeah. So it, it, it starts to get crazy. Yes. Are they paying out in excess of their premiums or they're just not doing as well as other types of insurance at this point? Depends on the insurer. Um, right. Depends on the yeah. insurer. Okay. I think some of them are paying out, in, certainly in excess of their cyber insurance premiums, not in, in excess mm -hmm. right. of you know, all of their right. premiums across all sectors. It's like a really bad driver. Some of them, I think, are just not doing as well. Um, but everybody's yeah. nervous, right? Everybody is feeling right. like this is a big change. This is sort of not not the calculus that we had been assuming right. 
going back at the looking at the past five, 10 years. So, Rachel, we're in 20, what, 22 right now? Yes. Two, 20. I'm betting by 25, this is, they, they've got this pretty, pretty down and they are moving the needle in organizations. I really I hope don't you're see right. them. I don't see them. I mean, Josephine, you know better than we do, but I don't uh, see them losing their shirts for five plus years and not making corrections. It's just not a right. normal business model. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think the you. fact that ransomware is increasing, I think the fact that they are losing money in some cases or not as profitable in others will force them to to uh, come up with better models. I mean, these the actuaries are going to look at this and say, look, we've got a you know, we've got a set of data at this point that we can at least get some derive some idea of what's going on in the industry and it's not heading in our favor. We right. need to change some things. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, 2025, Rachel, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get back on back. the show here and figure yeah. it out. I, I want to know because I, I would... It'll take a few years. The thing yeah. I think is interesting, though, was, you know, you, you read the reports, I think, in the last year, right, of, of cyber insurance companies being victims of ransomware themselves. Uh, you know, people targeting, you know, for their client list, hey, they got ransomware insurance, sweet, we got we got this great pool to go after. So then, you know, if ransom, if cyber insurance companies become the targets, then <laughs> who gives them the cyber insurance, you know? <laughs> this was, I, I don't know if you were following the story a while ago, AXA, one of the big insurers announced that yes. it was going right. to stop covering yes. ransoms in France. Uh, mostly because they were worried about sort of regulatory oversight and interventions. And almost immediately afterwards, unclear whether it was related or not, got hit with ransomware. And there was this sort of fear, I think, among a lot of insurers of like, oh, we should yeah. we should be careful of anything we say about <laughs> ransomware coverage. Don't want to attract It was totally coincidental, I guarantee it. But, but that's the thing in this industry. The risk is so low to the attacker. Right. Yep. Like your, your best defense is... Stay quiet. Don't upset anybody. Just stay below the radar, right? You you stay below your peer group and everybody else. Absolutely. I mean, I, I've said a number of times on this show, Colonial Pipeline would never have been attacked if they knew what was going to happen, right? That the president of the United States and the government of the United States mm. would get involved. Right. They would have never made that. Just stay under the radar. Right. So that's an interesting question. I think... Hmm. Huh, I'm trying to decide if I agree with that. I think it... Okay, good, good. I like this. Okay, I mean... (laughs) Rachel likes it even more. you're right. I I think it depends on sort of who's really pulling the strings behind that attack. And if we think it's really just a financially motivated attack, then yeah, you're right. Right, the the sort of financially motivated cyber criminals aren't interested in a lot of law enforcement uh, efforts or, you know, presidential statements. I think... With, with Russia, there's always a possibility that the financially motivated cyber criminals are in some kind of partnership or coordination or uh, even well, we just pretty much know tacit that. agreement with the government. And I think with the right. Russian government, it's less clear to me that they wouldn't want to do anything that would rile the president of the United States right. or make a big public splash. Right? I think, I think NotPetya is an example of sort of the Russian government doing something that they knew would be incredibly public, incredibly disruptive, um, and, right. and oh, going course. forward with it anyway. Yeah, so I would I would argue like NotPetya was was definitely directed, where 
if you look at some of the the random ransomware attacks, maybe not random, maybe that's a bad word, but some of the you know, the spray of ransomware attacks, I don't think everyone is directed. Right. And I don't I don't know that the that's nation state government true. said yeah. hit colonial pipeline. I think I think a nation state government may have said something to the effect of, hey, disruption of the United States of America organizations in the United States of America is in our best interest. Yeah. We sanction that, go disrupt things. I don't know that Colonial Pipeline, and this is Eric's opinion only here. I don't think Rachel's on board with me yet. Okay. I don't think it was a, it came up on a target list mm. with the intent to engage the United States government in the way it did. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I, that, that's that's perfectly reasonable. I have no idea sort of whose decision Nor do I. Colonial Pipeline yeah. was. I do think that, Anybody, whether government official or cyber criminal or anybody else, probably could have made a decent guess that going after a major pipeline would elicit some pretty significant response. Um, now, maybe, maybe I don't even know if they went after problem. a major pipeline if, if if they even knew what they were hitting necessarily. Yeah. I mean, like a spray and you know, pray kind of thing. It's so easy. Yeah. And, and, and I know, do you understand you know, I think, the consequences? Who knows? If you're making a multi-million-dollar ransom demand, you know what you've got. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I think that based on the size of the ransom they paid, they understood sort of what a high profile target they were going after there. Okay. Yeah. I wouldn't argue that logic at all. And then they got some of the money back, which is, mm -hmm. was kind of nice, you know, yeah. rare, but nice, I think. Yeah. It's uh, not easy to do. Did they, did they maybe like, because I, I think you had write, written about this as well, right, Josephine? I mean, it's, was it an insider in, you know, in the attacker group or, you know, did, did the company somehow get an encryption key or, you know, you almost have to get lucky and have lightning strike kind of thing if you're going to be able to, to claw it back or maybe the, you know, the, the, was it the crypto mixing firm <laughs> gave it up? <laughs> yeah, I think, I do well, think there's some luck involved. Obviously, you know, the U.S. government doesn't reveal exactly how they got the keys to those wallets. Right. So I'm, I'm, you know, guessing a little bit about what happened, but I do think that either there was sort of clumsy choice of infrastructure on the part of the criminals that allowed right. for the, the U.S. government to issue some orders that, that, uh, enabled them to get access to part of this money, or there was some other sort of maybe an insider, maybe just kind of good espionage and, and surveillance work right. that enabled them to, to get their way. But certainly it is the exception, not the rule, right? right? I mean, it is not the case that sort of we've got tools that allow us to do that every time. Um, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it when we can. Obviously, I would right. rather have law enforcement mm, claw money back than than not. I just right. I worry a little that sort of the message of that story to some people was like, oh, we should just pay ransoms. We can always get the FBI to get them back afterwards. And I do think it's important to kind of keep in mind <laughs> that, that yeah, that's, that's a pretty happening. unusual yeah, no. thing. Yeah, that's not <laughs> happening. Yeah. Yeah, you should not be in the business if you're banking on that. Exactly. So, so let's pivot to artificial intelligence because Ooh, I know yes. you've done a ton there. And Rachel's really excited about that. <laughs> I, I think that's fair, right, Rachel? I do. I, I I love everything about AI, and you know, there's just so many, so so many paths to to take take on it. Um, you know, I, I, you hear a lot of bias in AI though, and, and, and all the kind of, you know, bag of tricks that come with getting it right. And, you know, can you get AI right in cyber? Uh, you know, especially when you're thinking about, you know, people and understanding how they work and, you know, Are you talking the attacker or the defender? 
Well, I mean, I guess it could be both, but I mean, the defender, okay. right? If you're using AI for security, how how can you get it right? And I, you know, it, it kind of blows my mind when you're kind of how do you get there? So I think um, I think a part of what's hard about this is that often we're kind of making up the metrics for success as we go, right? Yes. And and that there's yes. no clear consensus on what it even means to get AI right and, and what that looks like, that we're sort exactly. of trying to figure out, okay, what are the different things you can measure here and how are we doing and are we forgetting to measure some really important things that we should have thought of? Um, I think you see that a lot in the bias space, that mm-hmm. that's sort of one of the ways that people are trying to think about bias and fairness in AI is by coming up with new ways to sort of assess mm-hmm. what is fair, what's unfair in an algorithm. Right. How do we sort of measure that in different ways that will allow us to, to try and understand that better? And, and until that there's sort of more consensus around that, I think it's probably a little bit tricky. So, so I think sort of the question of how do you get AI right is a really tricky one. And, and yeah. part of that is about trying to understand what are our ultimate goals. And in security, I think right. sort of the ultimate goals around AI are being able to use AI to detect attacks, maybe even to respond mm-hmm. to them, right? To sort right. of do that anomaly detection work, but in a more sophisticated more adaptive way than we're perhaps able right. to do it with existing tools. And then the other part of that, and it's it's sort of broadly across all applications of AI, I would say, is how do you secure algorithms and applications of AI themselves? How do you make sure right. that sort of they're not being manipulated or undermined or or in other ways corrupted? Yes. Yeah, that is I that is a even, big yeah. question. <laughs> Right. How do you how do you not corrupt the model so that how does an adversary not corrupt the model so that they can, you know, get their gain and whatever it may be in that manner? Yeah, because at, at, at some point you take the human out of the loop when you're using artificial intelligence. Well, I think part of the question that we're seeing now and in policy in particular, the EU draft AI regulations, those kinds of policy efforts, some of the DOD efforts around AI as well have been kind of focused on making sure there is a human in the loop, right? Saying, you know, at what stage does a person need to oversee uh, a final decision or, you know, assessment or whatever, whatever the AI application is. Um, And I think part of that has been trying to kind of nail down what are the different ways that humans can oversee artificial intelligence applications, right? What does it mean to try and have uh, a sort of human in the loop somewhere, but still get the benefits of AI? Um, And and that's something that I think we're we're just beginning to see policymakers try to to figure out. Um, DOD, for instance, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying DOD, for instance, has had sort of a lot of principles and a lot of discussions about, well, you know, we maybe want to use AI for certain kinds of video analysis or, or things right. like, you know, if you've got thousands of hours of surveillance footage and you're trying to search for something in particular, that could be a really useful right. application of AI, but maybe not right. um, identifying and selecting targets for attack, right? Maybe that's the mean, sort of thing like that we really want strategies? a person to do. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and so I think a lot of it comes down to sort of figuring out what are the specific places that we're comfortable not having human oversight and which are the places right. where we feel we really need it. So I, I've done a decent amount of work in automation in cyber. Yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't call it artificial intelligence. Right. Literally just, you know, 
automation, doing routine stuff and removing the human from the loop. I've written on human machine teaming. But I, I agree with you fully. I mean, where do you draw that line? How do you educate the human in the loop or watching the loop on what they have to do? And, and I've seen a tremendous amount of pushback from the lower levels where, well, that's my job. Right. Right. I don't want it. I don't want a machine to do that. And so, well, yeah. wait a minute. You will do a higher order activity, which is supervising the machine decisions. That's that's better for everybody, and they don't like that. And they don't necessarily. I, I would be concerned in some cases having some type of artificial intelligence or even just basic automation run if those humans weren't comfortable and able to 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 address what their role is. Yeah. And, and what the model does and doesn't do. Right. Yeah, so this is a huge AI issue as well. And sort of the, the workforce question, and it yeah. gets at everything, not just security of kind of what happens to these jobs and who right. are you displacing or, or sort of removing because you've brought in automated systems is, I think, a, a massive question around both sort of trying to think through the consequences and the implications of using more right. AI and trying to predict where is this yeah. actually going to happen, right? You you see all of these different predictions around like, oh, there are going to be no more human truck drivers in 10 years, or there are going to be no more people doing X, Y, or Z tasks. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time we ter haven't turned out to be great at making those predictions right. about AI, at, at sort of knowing <laughs> what exactly is going right. to be fully automated, what kinds of human oversight are going to be needed, and, and what's that going to look like. And we also certainly, I would say, haven't been great at predicting the timeline of like, you know, right. how soon do we think there won't be any right. need for human truck yeah. drivers? Is that two years out, five years out, 50 years out, et cetera? And, and will we even use trucks at the point when we could bring technology to bear to do something like replace a human in a truck driver's seat? Yeah. Now, it's, it's, it's an area where we've been talking at least a decade, I would say, in cybersecurity mm -hmm. specifically mm -hmm. about AI. Yep. I would think when I, when I say that, I mean, pretty heavily, I mean, I'm sure professors and scientists have looked at it for decades. Um, but yeah, I'd say in the last decade of my career, we've seen machine learning and artificial intelligence really take a prominent, a prominent position. Right. What I haven't seen is a lot of beneficial results. Yep. A lot of tools mm -hmm. and, and I'm, I'm struggling. I'm racking my brain right now. I, I know when I was at McAfee, some of the test rigs we had, which would go through hundreds of millions of samples a day, you know, they were pattern matching. I mean, there, there was definitely some um, machine automation in there, I would say, which then needed some level of human review. I'm trying to think of customer level technologies and I'm just drawing a blank right now. I think now. it's pretty minimal right now, honestly. Mm. I think I think a lot of things are marketed that way. I won't surprise you to hear. Oh, but I think that yeah, kind of course. Of, I think the actual sort of benefits. I, I I would say we're still in very very early stages. Um, and I think that's true in the sort of consumer security market. I think it's true in the mm. national security space right. with artificial intelligence applications that you're seeing groups like the U.S. military sort of start to build up. Uh, some some efforts around AI, but not necessarily have great results yet, or or rely on them very heavily. Right. Just sort of trying to to start experimenting a little bit and see where it's going. Um, and and I think there's probably you know a ways to go still in all of those areas in terms of trying to figure out what exactly we're we're heading towards or how quickly that's going to happen. My sense is it all moves right. sort of slower than we usually expect. And that that's why you I haven't think so. been able to yeah. see it. 
Absolutely. And, and I think things like targeting or, mm-hmm. or you know, looking through massive amounts of video or audio, audio recordings, mm-hmm. those are probably going to be easier than cybersecurity. Yep. That's yeah. probably I'm stepping fair. out of my swim lane here, but, but I'm, maybe I'm part betting of it human well, behavior right? could, could be yeah. sort of, you could imagine those oh, as, as security related applications, certainly. Right. Okay, I'm going to go on the podcast record here of saying I think the cyber sec- the cybersecurity insurance piece will resolve itself before we see massive movement from an AI machine learning perspective in cybersecurity. I concur. Do you? <laughs> I thought you might go the other way. Well, yeah, I think insurance learns fast, right? I mean, it's I think they can learn quickly, and you know, also because they have to, right? And uh, well, that's I, what I I'm betting. On. I'm betting yeah. on the you know currency being the the driving force there. Exactly. Well, there's there's a lot of money wrapped up in AI too these days, but I think that makes sense to me money, that sort of yeah. the, the insurance piece feels like a, a more settled and more developed space so far. Right. right. Yeah, and, and let me be clear. I, I think there will be a lot of transactions. I think there will be a lot of experimentation, a lot of efforts, mm-hmm. but I think the cybersecurity insurance needle will move. Yes, I agree. Faster. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm with you on Just that. Just a bet. I'm still not totally sure I know what the timeline is for either, right? I don't, you say 2025. Yeah. I think that's a little optimistic, but but I'm I'm hoping with you that that's where we land for the insurance well, industry. Dr. Wolf, let's be honest with ourselves. I was I was counting on my fingers. So I was like, sure. okay, 22, 20. Yeah, I'm going to give it about four years and I think we'll see something because money's in play. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd not say- an, not, not educated. The only thing yeah. I'd say, this is not to be negative or not to be pessimistic, is right, like five years ago, we were saying that about cyber insurance too. We were like, oh, we just need a few right. more years and like, we're going to figure this yeah. out and build better models. Um, and, and I think instead, sort of, everybody became much more skeptical of the models in the course of those five yeah. years. So it will depend a little on kind of what the threat landscape looks like as well. Well, let's talk about my very basic model as we're wrapping up here. I was mm-hmm. counting on my fingers. I was thinking about it, and I was using prices right rules. I wanted to be nice. below, not over yeah, sure. the price that target. Makes sense. So, uh, yeah, don't don't uh, listeners out there don't go off of what I'm saying. It could be 2030, 2040. Who knows? But I'll I'll, I'll stick with 2025. Rachel, Excellent. you got a vote? Uh, I'm I'm kind of leaning on the 27. Yeah, I, okay. 27 okay. to get it baked, but uh, they'll get there. Yeah, they'll get there. I don't know. Josephine, what are you thinking? So what are we counting as success? <laughs> like it's a booming market. Everybody has cyber insurance. The rates are really stable and standardized. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I th- I, I got to tell you, I think yeah. we're looking we at- We probably should define what we're talking about, right? Yeah, what, yeah. When do When will we consider it like success? A mature, yeah. mature exactly. I think a semi-mature yes. market. I think we're looking at the 2030 to 2035 range, I'll be honest. Wow. But I hope I'm wrong. I guarantee I'm wrong, Rachel. (laughs) We've got an expert and me. And we'll we'll play clips of this conversation and talk about where we were wrong and right. (laughs) Well, this is the fourth year of our show. So if we double our lifetime, we we probably can make that happen. Excellent. Rachel, what haven't we asked as we wrap up here? Well, I, you know, I, there's always my favorite question about optimism for, you know, the cyber path ahead, but I'm kind of picking up some optimism here from Dr. Wolf. Uh, yeah? Yeah, I think, you know, I think I'm optimistic, but I'm also trying to train myself to be optimistic on long time horizons, 
right? Like I think I think it's hard <laughs> to feel really optimistic about 2022 or 2023 right now. I think I'm I'm optimistic that sort of in the span of the next five to ten years we could make big progress, but I'm I'm less optimistic that that progress can happen in sort of yeah. immediate or, or short time frames. So your book, you'll see this message when it's too late, yes. came out in 2018. It's not a yes. super optimistic and, and, title, is it? <laughs> no, but I, I, I love it because it's so accurate. And, and you basically argued from what, 20, 2005, I think, if I have mm-hmm. my years right, to about 2015, 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. exactly. Things got progressively worse and we really didn't do a whole lot about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Is that fair? Yeah, summarization? that's pretty fair. Okay. Yeah. So from 2015 to 25, Am I hearing you say things will continue to get progressively worse and we will continue to do maybe not enough about it? So I would say the first half of that period from 2015 to 21, 22, well, things clearly have the case. to get worse. Yeah. Um, yes. I think- Well, they did. I yeah, want to yeah. say we're going to, I want to say we're going to turn a corner in 2022 um, and maybe even sort of late 2021. I think in terms of sort of Ooh, attention an and really? resources, I, I don't think we're going right. to turn a corner in terms of how severe the threat landscape is, but I think we're going to turn a corner right. in terms of how much attention and how much money and how much sort of focus from policymakers and organizations exactly. it's getting. And I think slowly over the course of many years, that's going to make a difference. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm, okay, what I'm okay. banking on. Rachel, how much are we spending on cybersecurity protection right now? I think you have that number, don't you, roughly? Is it 100? No, it's in the trillions, I want to say. Is that right? Or is it 150 okay. billion? I get my numbers. We, I should up. have prepped you for this one. I, I honestly don't remember the latest data. How much are we losing each year, Rachel? Do you have that data? Uh, no, but I do know, as, as our CEO said when we caught up with him, is that cyber criminals are making so much money, they're basically, what, the, the third largest country uh, in, in the world. From a GDP the US, perspective. Right, yeah, from the that US That sounds like China. a problem yeah, to me. Yeah, they, they got some okay. funds. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Not great. <laughs> no. Josephine, no. I, as we wrap up, I am not quite as optimistic as you are. It's something I'm trying to get over, but I just, year after year... So I, I'm not sure we turn the corner in 22, 23. Mm-hmm. You never we'll know, see. Eric. You never yeah. know. I, hey, yeah. we got to hope. We got to hope. We got to hope. We got to hope. All right. Great talking to you. Yeah, you as well. Been, been amazing. And I'm looking forward to your book, Cyber Insurance, coming up. Thank uh, you. When, when does that come out? When That'll come out in August. Be here? Oh, nice. Okay. And we can get your current book on Amazon. Yes. Because that's where I got it. Yeah. And I think MIT Press, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Well done. Well, yeah, it's up there. Jo- it's up there yeah. with a couple of the good ones for me. Thank I you. love this stuff. It's page turner for me. I could read it in a weekend. It's yeah, so I've got like fun. Perfect Weapon and yeah. and uh, oh, what's Nicole Perroth's book? Uh, oh, uh, this um, is how they tell me the world ends. Yeah, this another great Sitting title, right? right? You'll yeah. see this <laughs> message when it's too late. You're right in there. Yeah, I, I've got I've got those up there, and there, there's a nice book from. Uh, you know, uh, Steve Grobman and Allison Sarah from McAfee. Uh, I'm trying to remember the title right now. Um, a couple of them, but yours is right up there with it for me is what I'd recommend to somebody looking at the industry and trying yes. to get a handle on it. Yes. Who comes from outside the industry. Well, thank right. you so much. Or hell, even is in the industry. But it's yeah, like, exactly. hey, read this and it will give you a, a generalized, um, w- with examples, of course, but mm-hmm. it, it'll give you an idea of where we are in the industry today. And the problems we deal with. Right. Yeah. Cool. Um, All right. Well, Dr. Josephine Wolf, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been great talking to you. Such a pleasure. Thank you both so much. 
Yeah, you're welcome back anytime. I mean, Thank you don't you. have to wait until 2025. <laughs> but we'll call you back at that point. <laughs> um, you know, and, and as always, thank you so much to our listeners for joining us this week. And, you know, as we like to say, smash that subscription button, smash it, and you get a fresh episode in your email inbox every single Tuesday. Sounds so like our puppies are listening today, Rachel. They are. So that's a They're, good thing. They love today's episode. They're very excited. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 